The show is supported in part today by Omeo. Omeo is a travel booking platform. We're talking about traveling. We're talking about leaving your house. We're talking about being with other people in the world. Uh, maybe people who don't even speak the same language as you. Isn't this amazing? Uh, this travel booking platform actually makes planning a journey in Europe and North America both pretty effortless. You just enter your travel details, and then uh, Omeo will magically give you all the train, bus, flight, ferry options for your journey. It's like literally not ever been simpler to book uh, a real vacation. Oh, man. Are you excited? Best of all, uh, using Omeo saves you time and money, and that's clearly a win-win. Uh, Omeo wants to help you leave your house this summer by offering 5% off your next booking. Just head to omeo.com, O-M-I-O.com, and use the code LISTENER5 at checkout. LISTENER5, valid until June 30th for new users on all modes of transport, and it's uh, clearly just the pick-me-up that 2021 needs. Omeo, plan, book, and love the journey. Terms and conditions apply. Now, Let's do some rock and roll bedtime storytelling. Hey, you awake? Yeah. I just want you to know I hate you. So is my dad. Please go away. Let me sleep for the love of God. Why don't you tell me a story? How do you sleep at night? I don't want to hang out with a bunch of wannabe corporate sellouts. Rock and roll bedtime stories. We exist to set straight the rumor and innuendo that you've heard about your favorite bands and your favorite songs. We're going to talk about a particular song today. What's up? My name is Brian. And I'm Murdoch. Uh, today we're going to do a little something different. We're, we're going to talk a little about one of the biggest bands in the world and one of the loudest bands in the world, actually certified, and one of the weirdest bands in the world. And we're going to get all of them, to, they're all involved in, in one story. And we're, we haven't spent a lot of time diving into song history in a while. And so I thought today we'd also take a look at the story behind the lyrics that ride atop one of the most iconic Rock and roll riffs ever recorded. I heard a smoke on the water mashup today. <laughs> really? What they mash it up with? Uh, I think it's the Bee Gees. So I gotta ask you: You're a guitar player. How long into your guitar career did it take for you to learn this riff? I mean, what are the most iconic early guitar riffs out there for anybody who's learning, like from the book of rock and roll? Yeah, I think I think that was a very early on thing. So for me, it was it was this, and then it was what I referred to as brain stew, but what my dad would continually refer to as twenty five or six to four by Chicago, because it's the same riff. <laughs> it's the exact same riff. And I gotta say, I revisited twenty five or six to four when I was preparing this and doing the research. And man, that song rips! I don't know when the last time you've just like turned that song up and listened to all of Chicago lose their crap. But like Chicago back in the day, especially early Chicago, those dudes could rip. But that's not who we're talking who we're here to talk about today. We're here to talk about we we're here to talk about Peter Cetera. No, Here's I'll, hard to say. I'm sorry. I can't, I can't wait. Story. I can't wait doing? until we do a Chicago episode because I have a lot of stories to tell about Chicago because my sister, weirdly, even though she was born in 79, like got into Chicago at a certain point when she was in high school. So she's like in the mid 90s, like totally geeking out over Chicago stuff that came out when she was like two. And she would listen to she had a cassette tape. Murdoch, I've probably told you this story. She had a cassette tape on which she took You're the Inspiration and somehow recorded it over and over and over and over. So it was like a 60-minute cassette tape that just had You're the Inspiration on it. You're the meaning in my life. 
You're the inspiration. And she may have done the same thing with Hard Habit to Break at some point. So, like, that's the Chicago that I grew up with. And then I'm 12 and learning to play guitar. And my dad's like, dude, that's not Green Day. I don't care who those punks think they are. That's Chicago. And he showed me 25 or 6 to 4. Yeah. But, you know, I will tell you that the Green Day song totally kicks ass, too. For sure. Yeah, man. Yeah. Remember a couple summers ago where we got really good seats from our friend and went and saw Green Day on a Sunday night? That was a good day. Yeah. God, yeah. that was such a good and, time. And they played just kind of how I expected them to do. It's like, it was like Green Day as if they were a kiss that, you know, you just, yeah, yeah it was over the a show. There's a show, you know, but uh, I really like a lot of their songs. And one of the first songs I learned by accident was, do you have the time to listen? I learned how to, to play. Wine. Oh, God, I love that song yeah. so much. I because remember this. If you, if you slow it down, it's sucked out by Super Drag. So oh, that's, that's it what, is. That's, that's how, that's, that might have been how they got to open up for Green Day. So like they got to do, they got to do a, a string of dates with them. My back to my sister and her musical taste. She was not in a green day, but she did hang out with this guy when she was in high school, whose name was Bill Hogan. And uh, he drove a Ford Escort. And uh, I do remember that Bill Hogan owned Green Day Dookie right when I was coming into punk rock and right when that was really hot, like right when it came out. And of course, it was like kind of forbidden because I mean, what was that? 94. So I was like, is that right? So I was like 11. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's right in the wheelhouse. So. Uh, and it was, you know, if you, my kids think it's hilarious now, right? I pull it out and show them like the cover art is all people running away from like poop falling from the sky. Hence the reason it's called Dookie. <laughs> and so it's like a car. It's That's like a comic. And uh, I remember just being fascinated by it and wanting to like get into Bill's car so I could just like listen to it in his car. Like, who knew Bill? Can we drive somewhere just so I can listen to this? And he was like, Bill was not a punk rocker. Like he just was part of the mainstream audience that had found Green Day and connected to it in some way, shape, or form. But um, anyway, we're not here to talk about Green Day at all. We're talking about Smoke right. on the Water and really simple guitar riffs that resonate. And uh, Smoke on the Water is like ubiquitous. Uh, my nine-year-old, who is, uh, I mean, he's into a lot of stuff, but he gets in the car like within the last year at some point and gets control of the playlist. And I'm thinking we're going to get hit with, I don't know, Khalid or Bieber, or, you know, some of the stuff we like to jam together, maybe outcast, which occasionally happens. Uh, no, I get smoke on the water and I'm like, bro, where'd you hear this? He's like, I don't know, man, but it jams. It's like, you're right. It does. So where we're going to end up today is on that water where the smoke is rising. The real story that led to the lyrics that accompany that tune, but we're not going to go straight there. First, we're going to go to 1968 and we're going to hang out with some guys who you might know by their first names, Mick and Keith and the rest of the crew, their buddies, the Rolling Stones. So, in 1968, the Stones are making Beggar's Banquet, and they're filming Rock and Roll Circus, and Brian Jones is headed downhill. And it's during this time that Mick Jagger is starting to get irritated that traditional recording studios close at 5 p.m. Because let's just say that's not conducive for the rock and roll lifestyle. Um, And it needs to be realized here that, like, I cracked up at this. If you go to the Stones Wikipedia page and you look at the section right before the section that details some of this stuff that happens in 68, if you look at 65 to 67, it's actually labeled simply as height of fame. Would, would you, do you agree that the height of their fame was 65 to 67? We're talking about Stones who have had a, like a 50-year career. What year is that? They, they blew, like, 
it's like for me iconic rolling stones is in gimme shelter when they're playing that at madison square garden but that's 69 that's 69 right so so right so that's that song had been a been a hit it's still weird to think about that their career arc is what it is but they were they were an enormous like as big as the beatles band right you know? it, and and the beatles broke up <laughs> and I point this out that so that it's easy to understand the swagger that these guys had at this point. So even at, even in 67, 68, they're coming into their own and they're very, very famous. Uh, and so they're uh, Mick is frustrated and he's complaining about the studio being inconvenient. And he suggests that they go to this English manor that he just bought. Do you know about Stargroves? Yes, I've read about Stargroves. So yeah. what he realizes, though, is that if they go to Stargroves, they're basically going to have to build a studio in that house. And then they're going to have to take it back out when they're done. And that seems like a lot of work. And I don't think the Stones were necessarily into doing a lot of work at the time. So they're sitting around, and their road manager and pianist, Ian Stewart, you know that guy? He's like, yeah. He's like, hey, Mick, let's just make our own studio that's on wheels. That's right. So do you know anything about this? I had, I knew nothing about this. Oh, yeah, man. Pe- they People, m- more than just the Stones, use that unit. Okay, okay, okay. Calm Cord down. Stuff. Calm down. Calm down. So <laughs> okay. th- this is this is exactly what these dudes decide to do. I love this. I love I have to point it out every time it happens that Murdoch doesn't have notes in front of him, and he'll just completely mow over my notes. Uh, so because he knows everything on the tip. It's why this show doesn't work with anybody but Murdoch. So Stewart becomes the project manager. And with his help, wow. he gets all these engineers and producers, including Glenn Johns. And they decide to figure out like this is 68. So in 2021, let's just like close our eyes for a minute. And realize 2021, a recording studio is practically in your pocket. You can do stuff on your iPhone that could probably get played on the radio. Right. So it's hard to imagine what it's like to live in a time where everything is big and the equipment is oversized. It takes up rooms worth of space, right? So this was a very ambitious project to do this in, in 68. And so they go to Helios Electronics, who were known for making mixing consoles for like the best studios in the world. And using that stone swagger, they buy a van and they get Helios Electronics to help produce the first working version of what has gone down in history to be known as the Rolling Stones Mobile Studio. That's the fancy name. It's true. I mean, that's all they called it. They didn't they didn't name it after one of their records. They didn't like try to put all their first names in it as an acronym. They they just call it the Rolling Stones Mobile Studio. Now, I I'd literally never heard of it or its influence on rock history, but the Stones figured out pretty quickly that other people would want to use this. You've already alluded to this. Can I read you the list of classic rock records that were made in this van? This blows yes. my mind. Yeah, I can't wait. You're, you're going to, because you'll be able to do the comprehensive list, so go. It's starting with the Stones, Sticky Fingers and Exile. I mean, that's it, right? Isn't Are yeah. those the two, those are the two Stones records, if you had to pick two, Sticky and, those, and Exile. Those are... Those are easy, my two favorite stones. Yeah, I love, I'm a big Let It Bleed guy, but like Sticky and Exile are just, I mean, universally. And then that alone is just momentous. If that's all they did in this freaking van, worth it. Done. Uh, But let's add to that Zeppelin 3, Zeppelin 4, The Who, Who's Next? Are you kidding me? These were all made with a van? Okay, so 
Uriah Heap, Fleetwood Mac, Bob Marley, Bad Company, Dire Straits, Santana, and Simple Minds all recorded it at some point. And near its end in the early 90s. Do you know who the last two artists to use it are? Oh, the early 90s? Okay, well, wait. So technically, Mick Jagger's brother, Chris Jagger, is like the last person to use it. But I think that's just the family discount. Um, yeah. But-, but when you're really looking at like albums that came out sequentially, yeah. Um, yeah. Buddy Rich and Iron Maiden. <laughs> <laughs> Iron Maiden Iron- did Life After Death in 85 in it. And then they did No Prayer for the Dying in it. And oh man, live live after death is is one of my first live records that I had. Like I had Kiss Alive too. Yeah, yeah. And then I can't really think of another metal, especially just a live rock and roll record that I had as a kid that was in my face, like other than Live After Death. Well, know? and you're pointing out something that's key about this. They, so obviously, some of the big records I named have. They're, they're considered studio records, but they started to use this thing a lot because they realized they could record live events with it, right? And they kind of use it as a guinea pig for new technology. So several times there were changes to like how many tracks you could record in it and what sorts of inputs and outputs it would take. And in 82, they put a synchronizing computer in this bad boy that makes it like kind of cutting edge. And it's able to provide sound for TV production. So there's like a TV production involving Miles Davis at some point that's recorded in this thing. And in 87, Wyman, Bill Wyman, basically runs like this weird contest where he drives it around and produces demos for up-and-coming bands and then lets them all lets them all uh, perform at what? Royal Albert Hall. What? Yeah. What? Yeah. It's crazy. So, and, and then... They let, they let Bill have the thing to run around the <laughs> yeah, countryside? Yeah. It's like a reality TV show on TLC? Like, it's way, it's totally what it sounds like. I mean, if it was done in the last 10 or 15 years, it would definitely have been but like sold to a so network it, television. So it, so it really was Bill running around recording bands. That's far out. Okay. So in 93, they retire the thing because it's just getting a like kind of cost prohibitive. The market has gotten so competitive. The tech is catching up. All that stuff's happening. But in 96, they sell it in an auction and they move it to the US. The company that buys it moves it to the US and uses it to capture live performances in New York. And so Patty Smith and the Ramones are both recorded by it in the late 90s. Oh, I wonder what Ramones record that is. The, this, so I think what it actually was was they used it for, there was like live performances, a collection of live performances that they released and it was in uh it was called the best of NYC hardcore and there were 30 bands on it, but it included Patty Smith and the Ramones. So I don't, I don't think they did a full album, but it was this company. They just ran and people were, they were recording to the truck. Yeah. Loho studios, uh, are, is who bought it, um, in, in 96. So, I mean, dude, like, this alone is insane that there was a bus that what well, how did I not I'm a rock and roll nerd that didn't know that the Rolling Stones mobile studio existed. This is absolutely nuts. And I didn't I didn't seek this story out. What happened is I was looking at the history on a song we've talked about on the show a few weeks ago, and I happened to see that an early demo of that song, a Zeppelin song was recorded on and I was like what is the the Rolling Stones mobile studio like I didn't even know what it was it's this is such a great story 
Today's episode is brought to you by Omeo, travel booking platform that makes planning a journey in Europe and North America effortless. You're getting out of your house. You're getting out of your house. Uh, Omeo can make it really easy for you um, by offering 5% off your next booking. Just head to omeo.com and use the code LISTENER5 at checkout. It's valid until the 30th of June for new users on all modes of transport. All you have to do is enter your travel details, and Omeo will magically give you all the train, bus, flight, and ferry options for your journey. It's that easy. Omeo, plan, book, and love the journey. Terms and conditions apply. This silly bus, hugely influential in rock and roll history. It recorded Led Zeppelin III. I, I, oh, my God. Can, the, hey, listen, this, this is so what's crazy about even that piece, all that piece of music. So some of that was recorded through that, you know, at... at at that mansion and, and then out to the bus. And then Jimmy Page at some point had been trying to, he was in Memphis and he was, he had to get a ride to the airport and a guy from Ardent gave him a ride to the airport. And Jimmy Page came back over to America and went to Memphis and mixed parts of Led Zeppelin three at Ardent. Isn't that fucking crazy? So like, you you toured Ardent in the last few years, from right? The truck. It was recorded from the truck, and then they brought it to Memphis to mix it. When when did you go to Arden Studios? It was maybe ninety eight or so. Okay, and okay. You knock you knock on the door, and Jody Stevens from Big Star answered the door when I when I did it. And then oh my I, god! I gave him like fifteen bucks, and he took me around. There's not a lot to see, but like you know, you get to go in the rooms and you look at the, you know, it's like you go there's. The please to meet me room, you know, you go into that and it's out of it's out of control. Like you walk into it and you are sunk into the replacements. Please to meet me. Like it, it looks like a rubber room where they were throwing bottles and being terrible people. Um, <laughs> so clearly, like ZZ Top recorded all the. Rec- I mean, but the the fact that Jimmy Page did that. But that that music originated. They mixed it in a truck, and we you know, almost were... we almost lost this truck. We almost lost this van. It, now I I don't know if you know this story, but this is where we're, that we're going to turn now, and we're going to talk about. We talked about the biggest band in the world, the Stones, who helped create this thing, and now we're going to turn our attention to the loudest band in the world, who almost accidentally destroyed it. Did you know that in the 1975 Guinness Book of World Records, Deep Purple was officially noted to be the the globe's loudest band, quote-unquote? Did you know that? No, I, I thought that the Who was at some point. So like I would have, if you'd asked me, I, yeah. I would have said the same thing. Yeah, There was a 1972 concert at London's Rainbow Theater that apparently is what this is all rooted in. Um, but... They're considered to be among the pioneers of heavy metal. You know that. Um, I, I I'd never heard this before, but I guess that um, when paired when when put with Led Zeppelin and Black Sabbath, they have been referred to as the quote unholy trinity of British hard rock. Yeah, I'll that's great. Uh, they've sold a hundred million albums worldwide. Um, but if you ask a casual music fan what they know about Deep Purple, they they know the riff we played at the top of the show. <laughs> Right, and a lot of people. I, I, one thing I think is great is that Deep Purple like had a long. I mean, <clears throat> Blackmore they had a long career of different stuff, and some people don't even know that when the song comes on the radio and goes na 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 na, they're like, "That's people don't know that's Deep Purple. It's Deep Purple." Like it's so like it, David Coverdale from White Snake. Was was the singer at one point? I mean, yeah, it's I, so crazy. Yeah, it, it's, "Smoke on the Water" was on their sixth 
album. This isn't like the first record. Like this is, you know, to your point about their longevity, they have so many albums out over the years and they've, they only went on hiatus for like eight years. And then other than that, they've been since the sixties, they've been turning stuff out. But what guitarist Richie Blackmore has claimed that the main power chord riff uh, in, in smoke on the water is actually an inversion of symphony number five by Beethoven. (laughs) I don't know if that's true, but he's claimed it. I don't don't either. Hey, that's machine head. Yeah. Which is funny, like think about it. it's it's the Bush song. But no, so, <laughs> so also they were a ba- they were like an industrial metal band too, right? Machine Head wasn't there an industrial yes, metal band? Like, yeah, okay. There was a metal band called Machine Head. Yeah, but the but Machine Head was the first Deep Purple tape that I got to have. But it has Highway Star on it, which is a a, a better song than Smoke on the Water and Space Truckin's on there too. So I have to admit something. I, when I think of Smoke on the Water, I outside of the obvious, uh, you know, titu- tit- titular phrase, Smoke on the Water, I would not be able to tell you really anything about the lyrics. But uh, me neither. So hey, this is what we're going to get into. This there is a story being told over that iconic riff that came from a real experience they had in Switzerland, and it involves that freaking van. <laughs> Oh my gosh, that's what it's about? Yeah, and and to get to this story, we have to bring in, remember I told you, we're going to talk about the biggest band, we're going to talk about the loudest band, and we're going to talk about the weirdest band. All three of them are involved in this story. So we've got the Stone Studio being used by Deep Purple, and also in town, Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention. December 4th, 1972, Montreux Casino in Switzerland. Playing host to a rock and roll show from the great agitator, Mr. Frank Zappa. The mothers of invention take the stage and start doing their thing, but at some point, Ansley Dunbar's drums have like they, something gets screwed up with them, and I guess it sucks. Like it doesn't sound good, and so a lot of people start leaving the show. The band continues, and at some point, and this is just par for the course with Zappa. Some dude goes nuts. And he fires a flare gun at the ceiling. That sucks. Do you know this story? The Montreux no. fire story? Okay, no, so... Never never heard it. Keep the, going. The, the casino roof internally is covered in rattan? R-A-T-A-N or R-A-T-T-A-N, depending on how you where you see it listed. Uh, that's basically like palm fronds? Like palm trees, like leaves are all across oh. the top, and you fire a flare gun? I mean, just imagine. Remember how, like, in elementary school, they'd be like, we're going to talk about cause and effect. Uh, the cause here is a flare gun. The effect is the venue's heating system explodes, uh, and a fire starts. And while some folks are injured, the drum malfunction was, like, kind of a blessing in disguise because there were way fewer people in the room. And so people are able to get out. So the show started in the afternoon. There were no chairs in the auditorium. Like all these factors make it so that like nobody dies. Now there's definitely people that are injured, but nobody dies. But the venue goes just down in flames. Now this was going to be their last show of the year. Remember I said it's December 4th, 1972. And there were going to be winter renovations starting the next day. And since they were going to be renovating a portion of it, they'd rented out another portion of that casino to the band Deep Purple, who had flown in 
earlier that day on December 4th to prepare to start recording on December 5th. And guess what they were going to use to record since they were recording in a freaking casino? Right. They were going to use the Rolling Stones mobile. (laughs) Mobile. I'm saying it like that for a reason. Mobile uh, recording thing. So uh, they're, they're literally in their hotel. And they're looking across town, and they can see the smoke coming up by the water. And oh. the Roger Glover, who is the bass player at the time, says that title occurred to him when he awoke from a dream a few days later and referred to the smoke from the fire spreading over Lake Geneva from the burning casino. It was probably the biggest fire I'd ever seen up to that point in my life, and probably the biggest fire I've ever seen in my life, said Glover. It was a huge building, and I remember there was very little panic getting out because it didn't seem like much of a fire at first, but when it caught, it went up like a fireworks display. So now Deep Purple is left with an expensive mobile recording unit and no place to record. Eventually, they record in a corridor at the nearby empty Grand Hotel de Territe. But that's not the first place they go. And that iconic riff... That isn't where they did that. They first go to a vacant theater called The Pavilion. And this is amazing. So Richie Blackmore has told BBC Radio 2 that they they find this theater that's been totally shut down. And they're like, we're just going to go in that theater. And we're going to... Without a permit? Without a permit. And we're going to start to record... Dun, 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 dun. We did the whole thing in about four takes because we had to, Richie Blackmore told BBC. The police were banging on the door, and we knew it was the police, but we had such a good sound in the hall because the acoustics were so good. We were waking up all the neighbors for about five miles into Montreux because it was echoing through the mountains. I was just getting the last part of the riff down. We just finished it. The police burst in and said, guys, you have got to stop. And we had the track down. So that track, that riff, was recorded in the mountains of Montreux, Switzerland, in an abandoned uh, theater with the police banging on the door, as Richie Blackmore put it to tape. Absolutely amazing. And it was recorded into a little van with a whole lot of recording equipment in it. And now, can I read you the first verse of Smoke on the Water that you've never paid attention to? Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's so great. These are literally the lyrics. I swear to God, until today, could not have told you anything about this. We all came out to Montreux on the Lake Geneva shoreline to make records with a mobile. We didn't have much time. Frank Zappa and the mothers were at the best place around, but some stupid with a flare gun burned the place to the ground. Smoke on the water. Fire in the sky. Ladies and gentlemen, that is one hell of a rock and roll bedtime story. Wow. What a great song. I mean, right now, next time you hear that, you're not going to take it for granted. 
You're going to sit back. You know what? The next time you're going to hear it is right now. We're going to play this song. So you, Cause I know there's some guy right now and he's like, that's not what they say in that song. That song doesn't listen up. Listen up, buddy. Uh, check out the show at uh, we are the story and send us an email at uh, we are the story guys at gmail.com. And until next time, Burdock, what do people need to do? Keep telling stories and keep playing power chords. I'd highly suggest that as well. Baseline.